Amen. Would you pray with me? Though this world is filled with devils who threaten to undo us, Lord, we do not fear. For you have willed your truth to triumph through us. We have this treasure, Lord, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to you. God, you know our frame and remember that we are but dust. And yet in our weakness, Jesus, you are shown to be strong. In our Father, you are shown to be wise. In our frailty, you are shown to be steadfast. So, Lord, we pray and ask for help by your Holy Spirit. As we come to your word, this word that will fell the devil. This word that does not fade, though the grass withers and the flower fades. This word that is bread for our souls. We come and we ask you to nourish us, Lord. Would you show us, especially through this text in Ecclesiastes, the path to wisdom that we so desperately need? We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Amen, friends. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. You might notice this morning, if you remember our usual pattern that we've been keeping this year, that we are not actually on the New City Catechism this Sunday, even though it's the last Sunday of the month. When we were considering how to approach these next few weeks, it seemed wise to us as elders to skip this weekend of the New City Catechism and continue in Ecclesiastes because we have four sermons left in Ecclesiastes. And then we have made it all the way through this glorious book. What a good gift that has been. And the next topic that we're covering in the New City Catechism is the topic of God's law, the Ten Commandments, and how we're supposed to think about those as good gifts and as governors for our lives. And so it seemed wise to us to continue on Ecclesiastes, then at the end of September have a baptism service where we're celebrating several people being baptized, and then talk about the New City Catechism for a couple weeks, talk about God's law in light of the New City Catechism. So that's where we're headed, therefore this week we are in Ecclesiastes. I mentioned that it seemed wise to us, and I can't tell you how many times that we have had to say that over the past year and a half, right? This seems like a wise path to us. We need desperately wisdom in this time, don't we? I don't know about you. I've felt it so acutely over these past couple years in the midst of particularly the COVID crisis, Right? How are we as God's people to respond to things like government, government mandates closing down churches? How are we as God's people to respond to division in our culture over the question of vaccines? How are we as God's people to respond to the call to love our neighbor and what that looks like in the day-to-day life? 
I wish, as I'm sure you do, that there was a chapter and a verse that we could go to that would tell us exactly what to do in all of these circumstances. But the nature of life is that so much of God's word, we can go to a chapter and verse and say, this is a principle that applies to us. This is hope for the gospel. But so much rest of life, we don't have a chapter and verse for. And we're faced with, this seems wise to the Holy Spirit and to us. We're faced with the need to rely on God and his wisdom. That happens in the midst of crises. We've had some medical crises in our congregation with my dad and with Don recently. Others who've caught COVID and needed to know what is wise to do. How should we proceed in these circumstances? How should we live a godly life in light of these crises? We're also faced with just the day-to-day life reality that we need wisdom for, right? Raising our children, how should we raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? We know we're supposed to, but what does that look like in Albert Lee in 2021, in the midst of a pandemic? Where should we work? Where should we live? What should the day-to-day of life look like? These are all wisdom questions. Questions that you can't find a chapter and verse that tells you exactly Where to work, for instance, right? You have to apply God's word wisely. We need wisdom. We live in a time where we need wisdom in our speech as well. We feel this acutely in the age of social media and 24-hour news cycles, where every time something happens, you are expected to have an opinion about it and expected to share your opinion very quickly with very little time to actually think over all of the different aspects of what you're asked about. In an age of hot takes, we need slow cooking wisdom. We said at the beginning of our journey through Ecclesiastes that wisdom is living skillfully in God's world according to his order. Wisdom is living skillfully in God's world according to his order. In other words, it's not just knowing the right thing to do, but it's knowing how to do it. Living skillfully according to how God has created the world. We've seen in Ecclesiastes that the world we live in is actually the ruins of Eden. The world under the sun, a world marred by sin, which complicates our pursuit of wisdom. Because now, instead of wisdom being the default... Our default is often folly or foolishness. Living in rebellion against God, His created order and His word. But friends, we need wisdom and the preacher has much to share. The question I want to wrestle with this morning is how do we gain such wisdom? And how do we use wisdom well? In a way where we don't rely on it for what it can't give. The preacher is going to help us see two things that are going to help us understand how to use wisdom well. The first thing he's going to help us see is that wisdom itself is valuable. Just because we live in a world where everything is passing away, we talked about this last week, right? We are all going to die. Your death is certain. That doesn't remove the value of living wisely in God's creation, does it? We still need that wisdom. Wisdom produces good, produces gain. 
in this world. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 13 to 15 says this about wisdom. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver. And her profit is better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. And nothing you desire can compare with her. That's, that's wisdom. We want that. Right? Precious to us. Wisdom is valuable. And yet, what we see in this text, particularly in Ecclesiastes, is that wisdom is not only valuable, but the good that we gain from wisdom is vulnerable. Because we live under the sun, because we live in the ruins of Eden, the gain that we would have from wisdom, or the good that we would have from wisdom, is vulnerable. It's easily destroyed. Easily lost. We need to grapple with those two truths if we're going to use wisdom rightly. And we're going to see how those affect our use of wisdom as we walk through this text this morning. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9 together. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 13 to chapter 10 verse 20. I'm going to read the text for us and then we'll talk about it and walk through it. Starting in verse 13, the preacher says this. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building up great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, And princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stone is hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy 
are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility? And your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness? Through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice. Or some winged creature, tell the matter. My friends, after reading that, you might be thinking what I thought initially too, which is that is a bunch of different things that the preacher is saying, and I have no idea how they connect to one another. That's okay if you're thinking that. Many commentators actually think that as well. I think what we can see though this morning is that pattern in different circumstances, that pattern of the value of wisdom, and yet the vulnerability of the, the good that is gained by wisdom. So let's look for that in a few different places now in this text. The first, starting off in verses 13 to 18, we see that wisdom is valuable in a crisis. Wisdom is valuable in a crisis. There's this crisis that the preacher describes, right? A powerful king coming against a city, laying up siege works against that city, which is trying to batter the city walls so that he can break through Or batter the gates so that the army can come in and take over the city. And it's trying to surround the city so that they can't get out and get any food. This city was in bad shape in the midst of a crisis. And the crisis was very real because this king was powerful. And yet what happened did the preacher say? Inside the city there was a poor man. A man who no one would pay attention to. And yet he had one thing. He had wisdom. And somehow, the preacher doesn't really tell us. Somehow, through that man's wisdom, the city was delivered. We don't know the details in this story. But history is full of stories of smaller forces being delivered from larger forces in war. Because they use wisdom, right? They thought about the problem instead of approaching it dead on. They approached it sideways. They approached it from behind. They used wisdom to think through, how can I rescue this city? How can I overcome this force? The preachers saw an example of that. A poor wise man delivering the city. And he said this, he said, it seemed great to me. Verse 13. The secret weapon of this poor man was wisdom. And so the preacher concludes From seeing this, in verse 16, I say that wisdom is better than might. Right? Wisdom is better than might. In the midst of a crisis, if you have to choose between power or might and wisdom, choose wisdom. That's more powerful than even powerful might. Or he says in verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war. Though this king had mighty siege works, technology... That could overcome the defenses of this poor city. The wisdom overcame those weapons. Wisdom is more powerful than the powerful weapons of war. But this wisdom, notice, it's not impressive. What happens after the crisis passes? Verse 15. By his wisdom, this man delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. Because he wasn't impressive. He wasn't memorable. The victory was memorable, but this guy faded into obscurity. 
Wisdom is powerful, but it's not always impressive. Wisdom for God's people throughout history has looked like trusting in the Lord himself, right? In the midst of war, Israel, in her history, is full of stories of trusting in the Lord rather than in weapons of war. Wisdom of fearing the Lord being more powerful than the chariots that surround them. Psalm 20 says this. Psalm chapter 20, verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. This is the promise of God to his people that trusting in him will not put them to shame. We see in stories in the Old Testament, stories like Elisha going on behalf of the king of Israel to the king of of Syria. The king of Syria is gathered around with all of his armies and the servant comes up to Elisha and says, man, we're in trouble. And what does Elisha do? He prays and asks God to open the servant's eyes to see what's really there. And what does he see? He sees chariots of fire all around them. He sees the armies of the Lord standing on behalf of his people. And his trust in God and his fear of the Lord is strengthened. He learns wisdom by what he sees. Wisdom, we learn, is valuable in a crisis because wisdom is more powerful than the powerful. This means what we need to learn to do in light of this is to judge wisdom, not by appearance, Not by position, not by prestige. We need to judge by a different standard. Notice the preacher says he sees in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 10. He sees an evil under the sun that there are rulers who have set folly in high places. They look powerful. They look promising for deliverance. And yet they are fools. And he says the rich sit in a low place. That's not his commenting on wealth it's his commenting on these guys have status and the right to sit in high places and the right to rule and yet the roles are reversed so that fools are put in charge we need to learn to judge wisdom not by appearance or position or promise or by even how loud someone shares their opinion right better is wisdom The words of the wise, verse 17, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. We need to learn to judge by a different standard. We'll get to that standard in a little bit. What I want us to see next, though, is where the preacher goes, because he's been dropping hints throughout this story with the the wise man who delivered the city not being remembered, and the shouting of the rulers that are foolish still happening we see that though wisdom is valuable in a crisis the good that's produced from wisdom is vulnerable to folly verse 18 the preacher says this wisdom is better than weapons of war but one sinner destroys much good and then he uses this analogy he says in verse 1 of chapter 10 dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench So a little folly 
outweighs wisdom and honor. A little folly, a little, a little act of foolishly destroying good by living in rebellion against God's order. A little folly will destroy much good. Just like dead flies destroy ointment. Now, that might not... We could kind of get that, but I was thinking about it this morning as I was sitting at my table, drinking my coffee, and there was a couple of little moths flying around that had gotten in from outside. And I can tell you what, if one of them would have landed in my coffee, I would have had to start over with my coffee, right? I wouldn't just kind of sip around it and try not to get it in my mouth. That's gross, right? A little folly is like a bug, in your coffee, or like a bug in a bowl of soup, you're not going to finish the soup, right? It's ruined. Even a tiny, tiny little bit. The preacher is trying to highlight how easily it is for folly to destroy the good that comes from wisdom. Under the sun, our default is this kind of folly that destroys the good from wisdom. When the crisis is past, we forget the wise. Because the wise does not appear powerful or promising, we're so prone even to despising their wisdom, right? Look back in verse 16. Wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. Why? Because he doesn't match up with what you expect. He doesn't match up with the powerful. He doesn't look like those who are sitting in high places. Because guess what? The ruler has put fools in high places, right? And so, we go back to our default of foolishly rebelling against God and His good order. What this teaches us is that wisdom, though it is powerful, though wisdom is valuable in a crisis, it is not so powerful that the good from wisdom can't be destroyed. We can blindly think that if I just knew the right thing to do and how to do it, everything would go fine. I would have victory everywhere. I would triumph everywhere. Things would go well in in my business, in my home, etc. We can think that if we just had the right dose of wisdom, it would be strong enough to overcome the inertia of this world towards foolishness. But friends, it won't. The preacher is realistic and he says even a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. One sinner destroys much good. We need to remember that as we think about wisdom and its limitations. So wisdom is valuable in a crisis, but its good is vulnerable to folly. The next pairing we see is over in verse 8 of chapter 10. We see, not only is wisdom valuable in a crisis, but wisdom is valuable in daily life. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it. That might not be daily life for you and for me. Like most of us probably aren't digging pits. They dug pits a lot more often back then. So that's daily life it's talking about. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. They're doing construction. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. And he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. These are daily life activities that are filled with danger, right? I can at least relate to the cutting down a tree one, splitting logs, right? If you're splitting logs and you miss the log, you can 
really mess up your leg. It's no good. He who splits logs is endangered by them. There's an inherent danger in the activities of daily life. And what the preacher wants us to see is that given these inherent dangers, it is good to approach daily life with wisdom. Right? He offers the practical wisdom in verse 10. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. The implication is sharpen your axe. Right? We know this from a literal standpoint. My wife does a ton of cooking. And right now, her knives are dull because I need to take them to the cities and get them sharpened again. That's not good. It is better to use wisdom and cook with sharp knives. Right? It is actually safer to cook with sharp knives. Just like it's safer to chop a log with a sharp axe. Right? Use wisdom Don't just use more brute force, but think about it and use wisdom in the world God has created. God has created a world where things like axes that are made out of metal get dull and need to be sharpened. If you live contrary to that world and say it doesn't matter, you're going to be whacking at that tree for a long time trying to bring it down. Right? Don't live in rebellion to how God has created the world. That's what the preacher is saying. There's also figurative logic to this as well sharpening your axe is not just literal but is figurative we uh used to back in saint cloud i taught at a school that was formed around the seven habits of highly effective people and habit number seven of stephen covey's system is sharpen the saw right it's a reflection of the world recognizing the way god has created us that we need Things that sharpen our saw. We need to both fill ourselves with God's word and wisdom. And we need to do things like get out in nature and take a walk. We need to eat healthy. Those kind of things. Rebelling against that. Living without reference to that. Is foolish. And so the preacher is saying. Live in the world how God has created it in daily life. Wisdom, in other words, has value in daily life. It helps us. To succeed, as the preacher says in verse 10, right? Wisdom helps one to succeed. In the Hebrew, that word there that he's using is the word that he's been using all along for profit or gain. Wisdom, in other words, brings gain or brings profit, brings good to us. What we need to learn from this is that we must live aware of our need for wisdom, even in the small stuff. I don't know about you, but it's so tempting for me to only really pray for wisdom when I'm faced with a big decision or when a crisis comes my way, right? I'm tempted. It's really much easier for me to say, man, I need so much wisdom. I don't know what to do. And to cry out to God and ask him. And he is good and faithful to answer that prayer. But we need that every day. We need that in every circumstance of life, don't we? We need wisdom In daily life, even for the small stuff. But, we must learn, like the preacher tells us, that even though wisdom is valuable in daily life, the good from wisdom is vulnerable to time and chance. Look at verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. I don't know about you, but I don't know a lot about charming snakes. But this is talking about a charmer or 
Same word used for magician. Someone who knew some way of making a snake at least appear to be safe to be around. And they were used in courts and things like that, much as they are today in India. But he says, if the snake bites before it is charmed, there's no advantage to the charmer. If the snake bites before you can even have a chance to apply the wisdom that you're intending to, any good you would have from that wisdom is lost. That's what he's saying. And we read, right, in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 9 last week, that time and chance happen to all of us. Look at verse 12 of chapter 9. Man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net, and birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. In verse 11, he says, time and chance happen to them all. Right? In other words, what we need to see from that is that though wisdom is good and powerful and valuable in daily life, wisdom is not a guarantee. That's not how wisdom and the, the, the uh, genre of biblical literature of wisdom, that's not how it works. You can't read a proverb and say, if I do X, Z will happen without fail every time, 100% of the time. What wisdom is meant to teach us is how God has created his world and how we ought to live in it. It's not meant to guarantee the outcome, even though we would like it to. We need a stronger hope for lasting gain than merely do these things and you will have success. The preacher wants us to see that wisdom is valuable, so we ought not to forsake it. But wisdom is limited, and we need to understand that so we're not distraught and filled with turmoil and filled with despair when time and chance, which is the preacher's way of talking about the sovereignty of God who controls all time and all chance and makes straight and makes crooked, when that happens to us, when God has something else in store for us, then we want it. If we're viewing wisdom as a way to manipulate God and get him to do what we want, as a way to guarantee our outcome, we will be disappointed when God's will doesn't match up with what we wanted. But if we think about wisdom rightly, we won't look to it for a guarantee. We will look instead to a stronger hope. The third thing the preacher wants us to see is that particular area of speech. Wisdom the preacher teaches us, is valuable in speech or valuable in conversation, valuable in how we talk. He says in chapter 10, verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. We know from the New Testament, hearing Jesus talk in Luke chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus says this, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What the preacher tells us, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. Out of the abundance of his heart, out of the wisdom that he has internalized, his mouth speaks. His words become wise and win him favor. They do things 
things that are necessary, like calming a wicked ruler. A soft answer, Proverbs says, turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Wisdom does things like persuading. Wise words persuade people. Proverbs 25, verse 15, with patience, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue will break a bone. Wise words are used to build up, as Paul writes in Ephesians, that we're to not talk coarsely, but only what's for building up. The preacher wants his people to think about this because they live in a place where folly is set on high, right? Verse 5 of chapter 10, the evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler, folly is set in many high places. And the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Because everything is so topsy-turvy, he lives in a land with rulers who are at the very least ruling intentionally in a foolish way and are probably themselves fools. And so his listeners need to know how to handle that. Look at verse 4 of chapter 10. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. In other words, if there is a wicked ruler who's angry with you, using wise speech, calmness, he calls it here, using wise speech will win you favor with that ruler, whether it's to calm him, whether it's to persuade him, whatever it is. This wisdom Wise speech has value. What we see from here that we ought to learn then is because this wise speech flows out of a heart that is filled with wisdom, as Jesus says, we must cultivate a heart of wisdom. It's not just a matter of what we say, but it's what flows out of us to have this kind of value in our conversations. Wisdom is valuable in speech But that is one tiny little bit of what the preacher says about speech. And it's mostly about the ways that the good from wisdom is vulnerable to foolish words. Look at verse 12 again. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This is the kind of person who would get lost even on an escalator, the preacher says. It's the kind of person who does not know the way to a city, whose foolish lips, in verse 12, consume him. A fool eats himself, in other words does himself in. How easy it is, as you know, to do yourself in, to overcome any possible good of anything you've said with one rash word, with one ill-timed evil word. Good is so easily lost with careless words, and we live in a time and a place where words are all over, and our words are all over, and what we say is out there for people to hear. And so the preacher is saying, be circumspect about what you say. Learn to speak wisely and not foolishly, because if you speak foolishly, you'll show what you really are. 
We can't take back what we say because it's carried away from us. And the preacher uses the example of a bird in verse 20. Chapter 10, verse 20, he says, Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the manner. The preacher is living in a time where there are foolish kings. That's what he's talking about in verses 16 to 19, when he's talking about woe to you, O land, if your king is foolish, if your king is a child, he says. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility. That's a way of saying, woe if your king is a fool. Happy if your king is wise. And yet, the preacher lives in a land with foolish kings, but he knows there's a temptation to speak about that, to curse the king. But that would not be wise, because it's carried away, the preacher says. He lives in a day when foolish speech could literally lead to his own death. We may not live in that environment, but we do live in a day where our speech matters. We must, we see from here, learn the kind of self-control that comes as a fruit of the Spirit. The kind of taming of our tongue that James talks about. The preacher is teaching us that wisdom is valuable in speech, but it can all be undone so quickly. Because it's vulnerable to foolish words. In these pairs that we see, Wisdom being valuable in crisis, but vulnerable to foolishness. Wisdom being valuable in daily life, but vulnerable to time and chance. And wisdom being valuable in speech, but vulnerable to foolish words. We see two ways set before us. In verses 2 and 3, we see these two paths come to fruition. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right. But a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. The preacher says that in order to use wisdom, in order to learn wisdom, we must recognize that it's not just about one individual action or another, but it's a path that we set ourselves on. A path of wisdom or a path of foolishness. A path to the right or to the left. He's not making a comment on right-handed versus left-handed. He's using common metaphors for a path towards good and life or a path towards evil and wickedness and destruction. They're the same paths that we saw in Psalm 1 during the worship service this morning, right? The path of righteousness leading to life where you flourish like a tree planted by streams of water or the path of wickedness leading to destruction where you're blown away like chaff. The preacher says, A wise man's heart inclines him towards the right, the right path, the righteous path. A fool's heart inclines him towards the left, towards wickedness and towards destruction. Friends, these are the paths that the preacher sets before us. And he wants us to do with this is choose wisdom. Choose the path of the wise. But how? How do we do that? He doesn't actually tell us how to do that, at least in this section of Ecclesiastes. But I think it's important to reflect briefly, how do you actually choose wisdom? If wisdom is valuable, how do you choose and use it rightly? In order to do that, we have to look at the broader counsel of God's word. I want to give you five pointers on the path to wisdom. We know from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 
When he gets to the end of everything, in verse 13, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We know from Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So we must start. The path to wisdom has to start on the path of the fear of the Lord. If you don't fear God, you cannot be wise. Not ultimately. Because a little bit of folly will destroy whatever kind of good you could hope to generate from your own wisdom. We must start with the fear of the Lord. Everybody who does not know the fear of the Lord cannot ultimately be wise. They're ultimately going to travel along the path of foolishness. We start with the fear of the Lord. Number two, we take wisdom and we follow it to Christ. What I mean by that is the preacher ends the book of Ecclesiastes by saying, in verse 11 of chapter 12, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. They're given as goads. They're given as pointers. They're given to prod you along the path of wisdom, which leads to Christ. We follow wisdom along the path, to Christ. We're goaded by the words of the wise towards Christ who is the wisdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 we read that Christ is the wisdom of God. And so to find him we need to let the words of the wise like the book of Ecclesiastes prod us along that way. Once we've found him what do we do? Number three we need to hear and obey him. Hear and obey Jesus. Make a habit, in other words, of doing what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Because we saw in the text that that wise speech wins favor and foolish speech destroys us. And that our speech comes from what's in our heart. We need to have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. When the word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, what we need to do with that word then is obey it. James chapter 1 talks about this, right? James 1, 22 to 25. Don't be a hearer of the word only, but be a doer. Let God's word dwell in you richly and do it. Fear God and keep his commandments. Meditate on his law day and night. As the psalmist says. Hear and obey Jesus. Number four, and this may be, I think, the one that I feel is most significant for me and most helpful. Consider the cross. Consider the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 tells us, right, that the cross appears foolish to the world, but it is the wisdom of God. We must not judge wisdom based on its appearances only, based on whether it works or not from our perspective, but we must judge it by its conformity to the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, which is where Jesus humbled himself, where he laid down his life, where he counted others more significant than himself. A cross that he went to over the course of his whole life. And that didn't stop him from feasting with sinners and tax collectors. Didn't stop him from offering the piece of bread 
to Judas, knowing that he would betray him. Right? All of these things that Jesus did are shaped by his death on the cross. And so we must learn not to be deceived by fools seated in high places and think that what they're saying is wise. We must learn to judge wisdom by the evaluation of the cross. And then number five, we have to be humble. When you pursue wisdom and try to walk by wisdom, you must be filled with humility, remembering what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, that right now, right now, we see through a glass darkly. Under the sun, we don't see the whole picture. And there's many times where we will try to be wise, and it will seem good to us and to the Holy Spirit as best as we can tell. And hindsight will be twenty twenty, and we'll say, you know what, I think we should have done something else. You've got to be willing to hold your conclusions loosely when they're generated by your reflection on God's word and wisdom and hold them firmly when they're clear from God's word, right? We need to have the right kind of humility, the kind of humility that looks to Christ and the cross and is shaped by that act. Friends, this is what Paul calls us to in Ephesians 5, and I want to leave you with this exhortation from him. Ephesians 5. He sums up all of this teaching that the preacher is giving on wisdom. This way. Chapter 5 verse 8. He says at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Lord, we long to understand what your will is. We long to be shaped by your word. To have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. That only happens by your spirit at work through your word and through our fellowship with one another and through the means of grace that you have given us. Means of grace like your table that we're going to enjoy together in just a moment. I pray, Lord, that you would help us as we see before us a path of wisdom and a path of foolishness. Help us to choose wisdom. Help us to know what wisdom looks like and to recognize it because we've seen it in your son, Jesus. And help us to, Lord, hold the gain that we gain from wisdom loosely, knowing that we have a sure and steadfast eternal gain in Christ who held his own life loosely and laid it down for our sake. Would you help us, we pray by your spirit. Amen.